Greetings from McDill Air Force Base, a 2018 Great American Defense Community. I'm Colonel Ben Johnson, Commander of the 6th Air Refueling Wing. And I'm Dr. Bob Rorlack, President and CEO at the Tampa Bay Chamber. Thanks for tuning in. This is ADC Live. Good afternoon and welcome to ADC Live. Uh, I'm Joe Driscoll, ADC President, and I'm joined in the studio by ADC CEO Tim Ford and Executive Director Matt Boren. Thanks, Joe. Hey, and before we start, a big shout out to our friends in Tampa Bay for that special message. Uh, they seem amped up still by their big Super Bowl win. Uh, but hey, even if you don't have Tom Brady throwing touchdowns for you, you can still be a part of ADC Live and have your community featured. Let us know if you're interested. Tim, over to you. Well, welcome to ADC Live. And what energizes me about this program is the opportunity for us to reach our members, the military, and viewers around the country in a whole new way. While ADC is focused on returning to its in-person model in the near future, the pandemic has opened the, the door to new avenues of communicating, and we are embracing them. This program is really meant to be an extension of our daily on-base coverage and a new way to share information. And it's meant to be timely. We don't always know what we'll be talking about or who we'll be talking to until the day before. So stay tuned. There's a lot of interest, and we have some great guests coming up. You know, today also marks our first broadcast from Washington, D.C. in five months. Uh, and what a five months uh, period it's been. The landscape has literally changed here in our nation's capital. A new president, a new Congress, new leadership at DOD. This will be a big focus of our up uh, upcoming shows, giving you an in-person look at the people, the ideas, the policy directions of this new political landscape. While so much has happened, the transition is still at its early stages in many ways. So to catch up on the news from DC, I'm happy to welcome our first guest, Deputy Editor and Senior Pentagon Correspondent for Defense News, Aaron Mehta. Aaron covers policy, strategy, and acquisition at the highest levels of DOD and across the world, and also in defense industry. Welcome, Aaron. It's a pleasure to have you with us. You know, I want to talk a little bit about uh, pace of appointments. As we near the two-month mark since the inauguration of President Biden as our newest president, only three of nearly 61 political appointees at DOD have advanced. While this is not uncommon to have slow advancement of nominations, it does feel even slower than normal. How does this compare in your view and what should we expect uh, from this process and what's the impact of this slow moving transition? Well, thanks for having me guys and congratulations on the show. Um, yeah, so this is, uh, it's slow. It's slower than ideal, I think is safe to say. Uh, scholars who have studied the numbers say that the Biden administration actually has done a pretty good job of getting nominees across government uh, forward to the Senate to begin the nomination process. But DOD is lagged behind. Uh, as I said, we have three nominees. We have now Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who was announced in middle of December uh, and confirmed the day after the inauguration. We have uh, Kathleen Hicks, who's the now Deputy Secretary of Defense, who was announced at the end of December and confirmed in early February. And we have Colin Call, who is the nominee to be Undersecretary of Policy. He was announced the same day as Hicks. He had his confirmation hearing recently. Uh, and I think we'll talk a little bit about him going forward. Not necessarily sure how quickly he's going to get into office. Otherwise, you know, it's been essentially uh, two plus months now since those nominees were named. And we don't have other people. We don't have names for 
the service secretaries. We don't have names for the undersecretary of defense for intelligence or personal and readiness, uh, let alone the kind of lower level people who probably most people have never heard of the assistant secretary of defenses for, you know, say Asian policy and such, but people who really make sure that the things are moving in the Pentagon and make big policy decisions. You know, the Biden team uh, has told reporters that they focused on getting people into the building who didn't need Senate confirmation right away. They've done a pretty good job. They have almost 100 people who are now political appointees who are not Senate confirmed. They're lower level uh, to get in the building and have them working. And that's everything from uh, Lloyd Austin's chief of staff to uh, experts in various different policy areas, such as nuclear, chemical, biological issues. But you do want these Senate confirmed people in place because when it comes to talking inside the rest of the government, yeah, working with state or other areas, you want to have equal representation for the Defense Department. And it's hard to do that when you have people kind of filling these roles in an acting capacity. Uh, Aaron, thanks for that great overview. Um, obviously, you're in a wonderful position to be able to see what's happening. Uh, let me drill down just a little bit on one of those uh, uh, people who uh, actually have advanced, and that's Colin Call, the uh, Biden administration's nominee to be the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. I know he had a pretty tough hearing last week in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, the SASC really did kind of focus down on questions about partisanship and past tweets. Um, but past that, what do you think ultimately will happen? Will he be confirmed? Uh, you know, what's that process going to look like? Yeah, it's interesting we're talking now because just a couple of hours ago, uh, Jim Inhofe, who's the uh, ranking member, top Republican on the committee, announced he would not be supporting call, uh, which is a sign that probably no Republicans will support him, which means it's going to come down to a party line vote. Uh, look, call is somebody who was he has two strikes against him for Republicans. The first is that he was uh, involved pretty heavily in crafting the Iran nuclear deal during the Obama administration and has continued to defend that deal pretty vociferously uh, in public. Uh, and the second is that he has tweeted many things over the last couple of years that are partisan. Uh, things, you know, calling, uh, insulting President Trump or saying Republicans believe one thing and we should believe something else. Uh, you know, the reality is the partisan thing. Look, the tweets are not great. He's apologized for them. Uh, we know that uh, Biden's pick to be the budget director near Tedden essentially was torpedoed by her tweets. There have been partisan people who've been confirmed before. Certainly uh, during the Trump administration, there were people we saw who were confirmed fairly easily who had pretty partisan tweets in their half. Um, the Iran deal, I think, is frankly the bigger issue for a lot of people. It remains to be a flashpoint, uh, particularly in the defense communities, about whether that was a good deal or not, and whether people who are involved in it should be given top jobs. The Undersecretary of Defense for Policy is the de facto number three person in the department uh, in terms of civilians. They are everything from uh, they do some budgetary stuff. They do some acquisition stuff. They do a lot of foreign relations. Uh, it's very much a key role. And they're seeing a lot of resistance from people who are saying, look, if he thinks this deal was a good deal, then maybe his judgment's impaired. The politics here are real interesting. Uh, Joe Manchin, who is the Democrat from West Virginia, has really set himself up in the first couple of months of the Biden administration as the key vote. It's a 50-50 Senate. Uh, they need Democrats to stay locked in to get essentially anything passed. And Manchin seems to be aware of that. He said in an interview this week that he is uh, talking with Colin Call. He's also talking, heard from uh, Secretary Lloyd Austin. Uh, he's going to talk to Bob Gates, who Call worked for. And he said he hasn't made up his mind. But with Inhofe saying he's not going to vote for him, it seems likely that Manchin is going to be the deciding vote in the Senate Armed Services 
committee to move it forward. If Manchin says, okay, I'll back him, it'll go to the full Senate and likely it'll end up being a you know purely partisan vote uh, that'll get him in. If Manchin breaks, then it seems hard to see how he ends up working in the Pentagon going forward. You know, this is why I keep my Twitter usage for sports only. <laughs> I only follow Very the smart. Dallas Cowboys, I tell you what. Uh, well, you know what? There was some good news in terms of nominations this week. Two women whose nominations for combatant commands that were previously held up did advance. Can you tell us more about this? Yeah, so that's uh, Air Force General uh, Jacqueline Van Overst is going to be the head of, or has been nominated to be the head of U.S. Transportation Command. And uh, Army General, Lieutenant General Laura Richardson will get a four star and take over at U.S. Southern Command as she's confirmed. This is the second and third women to be nominated ever to run a combatant command. The first one uh, was in 2016 when Air Force General Lori Robinson took over NORTHCOM. Uh, before that, it was all men. Um, and this is you know, seen as a big thing going forward for diversity. These were people, however, who were actually uh, selected for these jobs uh, during the Trump administration, Secretary, then Secretary Mark Esper, before he was fired uh, following the election. And Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, uh, had these recommendations ready to go. And in Esper's own words, they decided not to push them forward because they felt that the Trump administration, the people who were in the White House at the time, would not back women for these top roles. They wanted, in Esper's mind, they wanted to see men who were kind of fit the mold and they might've shot down these nominations. And so Esper told the New York Times in February, a really stunning revelation uh, that he said this, that they made the decision, him and Millie, to hold off sending these nominations up until they saw what happened after the election. And we saw that they held them essentially until after uh, Trump left office and Biden came in. You know, Esper has said these two women are incredibly qualified. I think uh, talking to folks who have dealt with them and you know, looking at the resumes, they are. They're absolutely qualified for these jobs. You know, the fact that Esper felt the need to hold off on sending these up uh, is, is quite a stunning revelation. You know, going forward, I would expect them to be confirmed pretty easily. It's just a matter of timing. These COCOM jobs are largely up based on time. So uh, I think this summer we'll probably see them both step into office. And I think there will be a lot of people, women, but also people who just support spreading out the Pentagon and diversifying a little bit. We're going to be quite happy about that. Well, Aaron, I think we're about out of time here. So I, I really appreciate you coming on today. Uh, we'd love to have you back. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll see you soon here in the future. Great. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks a lot. Now let's head over to Tim, who's going to give us a rundown on the headlines coming around from D.C. and around the country. It's Thursday, March 11th, and here are your headlines powered by OnBase. It was one year ago today the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic, and our lives began changing in profound ways. What a year it's been. Throughout this year, we've tracked how COVID is impacting DOD, and now that includes playing a leading role in making sure Americans get vaccinated. The Pentagon has recently tapped more than 1,000 additional troops to help with the COVID-19 vaccination effort. This brings DOD's support to over 6,000 active duty service members across 40 plus teams who will be detailed to COVID-19 vaccination centers. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin visited one of these sites recently in California, and we have this report via the California National Guard. Many of these troops that you see here have, have served in uh, combat zones. They've been out helping people all over the world do things like run their local governments and you know towns and villages, administer health care to to their citizens, provide security. But you know, I, I asked a number of our troops today how they feel about being able to come here 
and help in America. Understanding that every shot that they deliver to a person is probably helping to save that person's life eventually. And, uh, and that's a big deal. That's, we're in the business of, of protecting Americans and saving lives. And they feel really good about what they've been doing. As important, the people that they've been helping feel really good about having them here as well. Now, I've talked to some of our local officials and civilian agency heads, and they've told me that, you know, what the military brings to, to this equation is uh, discipline, organizational skills, and effectiveness. And they were impressed by the fact that every day our troops take a look at things and, and endeavor to get better. And over time, a very short period of time, increase the capacity in ways that we probably couldn't have envisioned a couple of weeks ago. In the walk-up site, I think we're doing uh, some 2,000 shots a day with a very short wait time. And here you see the evidence of what organization and teamwork and discipline uh, brings to the equation. You know, I'm not a very emotional guy, but there are two things I heard here today that, that almost brought tears to my eyes. The first thing I heard was from the commander, Lieutenant Colonel Olson, who said, our ability to be here is a bestowal of trust by the American people. The other thing I heard that almost <laughs> brought tears to my eyes was one of our young soldiers here, a young sergeant, is from this neighborhood, and you've seen him uh, reported on before, but I didn't realize this, and he told me he administered you know, the vaccine to his mother. That, that rocked me backwards as well, and, and, all, and almost brought tears to my eyes. So the ability to do things like that, I think it, it really makes a difference, and our, our troops find this to be a very meaningful deployment. It's a real pleasure to come and, and, and see how well this is working. You know, we're in support of FEMA, who is in support of the whole of nation uh, effort uh, to get the vaccines out as as, uh, as rapidly as possible and as effectively as possible. And so I think we're off to a, a really, really good start. DOD's role in supporting the COVID response was front and center at the Senate hearing last week, where Senator Gary Peters of Michigan asked DOD specifically about vaccination rates in defense communities. Senator Peters shared recent data that shows while 60% of Americans are willing to be vaccinated, that rate drops to nearly half for military families and raised an important issue. What does that mean for defense communities? He continued by encouraging DOD to work with ADC to better coordinate with local communities so that all resources are leveraged to increase vaccination rates in defense communities. The DOD budget officials at the hearing pledged to do everything in their power to support this important endeavor. Stay tuned and get your shot. This was a big week for First Lady Jill Biden, who made her first official trip, and it was to meet with military families at bases across the West Coast. On Tuesday, Dr. Biden visited two bases in the state of Washington, Joint Base Lewis-McChord and Naval Air Station Whidbey Island. While visiting JBLM, 
Biden toured the new on-base children's museum, a joint effort between the base and a local museum. Biden also met with representatives from a unique program which supports families who have children or dependents on the autism spectrum. Her trip continued on Wednesday with a stop at Marine Corps Base 29 Palms, where the First Lady arrived in an Osprey helicopter before touring a child development center and meeting with families. Biden's visit is a formal is a preview to the formal relaunch of Joining Forces, a program she started with former First Lady Michelle Obama. Biden said the reboot of Joining Forces will focus on employment, education, and wellness programs for American families. I think we are going to see a lot more of the First Lady in our communities in the years to come. Now back to DC and a topic on everyone's mind, the budget. While this week's headline was the passage of the $1.9 trillion relief package, those of us who track defense issues are already looking ahead to President Biden's first budget, which is expected next month. Joining me for a preview of the budget battles that have already started is Todd Harrison with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome to ADC Live, Todd. Hi, thanks, good to be here. It's March, we don't have the president's budget. Tell us what's going on. <laughs> yeah, so normally the president's budget request is released to Congress every year. The first Monday of February is supposed to be the deadline. Uh, but in the first year of a new administration, um, they, of course, can't meet that deadline. That's just a couple of weeks after inauguration. Uh, so right now they are tracking for a deadline of May 3rd, so the first Monday in May, to deliver that budget request to Congress. DOD is still working through a lot of issues in that FY22 budget, uh, things that were put in there by the outgoing administration that they may want to unwind, uh, and high priority issues that they want to make sure get included in that first budget. But I would offer some caution for people. Uh, typically, the first budget of a new administration is not a big shift just because they haven't had time to build that budget from the ground up. They're just tweaking you know, on the margins of what the previous administration had put together. I wouldn't expect any big shifts in the budget uh, until the FY23 request comes out next year. Well, then, then help me think about this. What, what can we expect when we do see the budgets in, in terms of the top line? How do you see the battles within the Democratic caucus and, of course, the Republicans playing out? Yeah. So, you know, what's been communicated so far, you know, what's been written about in the press is that the top line budget they're looking at is essentially flat from FY21, from the current level, with no adjustment for inflation. So when you take into account inflation and inflation is very low right now. So one to two percent inflation is probably what we're going to see this year. Um, that actually a flat budget means, you know, your buying power is declining. So that's what we're looking at in terms of the top line. And for DOD, the problem that creates is there are a lot of costs within the budget that grow faster than inflation, things that you can't necessarily control labor costs, the cost of military personnel, and the cost of just you know routine peacetime operations per unit, per person, tends to grow uh, 2 to 3% above inflation each year. So if those parts of your budget are growing faster than inflation and your overall budget is not growing at all with inflation, uh, then that forces you to have to make some cuts within the budget. So that's what we're looking at is where are they going to direct those cuts within the budget 
just to live within this top line that they've got. And, and while you said you don't expect big changes, what kinds of changes do we think we might see in this first budget? Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to nuclear modernization, I think, you know, we're going to see some tweaks there when, you know, the Trump administration had proposed a new nuclear armed sub launched cruise missile. That's probably going to go away. The low yield nuclear weapons are going to come back out of the arsenal. Um, we also see, are likely to see uh, increased investments in autonomous and remotely crewed systems. That appears to be one of the priorities of the new administration. And, you know, then I would be looking at some of the aircraft programs, particularly the sustainment of legacy aircraft, because that's where we could see some uh, reductions proposed that maybe we weren't expecting. I know we don't know what's in the 22 budget, but if you start to have to think ahead where we go from there, what do you see coming ahead in, in the future years? Yeah, so in the long term, I think this um, the idea of the future fleet of the Navy growing to 355 ships or even more, if you include the remotely crewed systems, it could be up to 500 ships. Uh, I think that's going to go away. Uh, that given the budget constraints that we're looking at now, uh, growing the Navy in any significant way is just not in the cards. Um, I think that for the Air Force to continue with all of its modernization programs that are currently planned, uh, they are going to have to get some relief from Congress uh, to retire some of their existing platforms. So we could look at more retirements of tankers, the KC-135s ahead of schedule, um, you know, continued retirement of the KC-10s. They may take another shot at retiring AT. Uh, and so we could see more aircraft investments like that in order to pay for modernization of new aircraft. And then the Army, uh, I think, you know, like it or not, may end up being the bill payer in terms of force structure. We may see some, you know, reductions in the in overall in strength of the active duty Army to pay for some of this. Well, that's a lot to think about. I think we have to cut it there. But thanks for joining us today, Todd. And we hope you'll come back when the budget comes out. Thanks for joining thanks. us. Glad I could do it. Let's get out of D.C. for a minute as we travel across the country and take a look at what's happening in our communities. First, we head back west to the Golden State. Say goodbye, Vandenberg Air Force Base, and say hello, Vandenberg Space Force Base. No, no date has been announced for the change, but Colonel Anthony Mastelar, the 30th Space Wing Commander, anticipates the transition will be happening soon. The name change reflects a transition for the base, which has served as part of the Air Force since the 1950s. The soon-to-be Space Force base is planning nearly 13 launches this year, a figure that has doubled since 2020. Next, we all head to Albany, Georgia, and I hope I get that pronunciation right. The home of the Marine Corps Logistics Command is also now the home to a brand new 5G-enabled smart warehouse that will feature robotics, holograms, augmented, and virtual reality applications to help manage storage and maintenance of vehicles, materials, and supplies. Late last year, the Department of Defense announced $600 million in award for 5G experimentation and testing at five of its installations. Federated Wireless and various partners leading this project say that the Albany Initiative will become a reference design 
for smart warehouse automation across the country, adding the technology will improve communication and operational efficiency for the Department of Defense. And here I thought 5G was just gonna make my phone faster. Next, we head to the back to the state of Washington. A recent story on CBS News about military families struggling to put food on the table has inspired generosity from around the country. The story about Kay, a military spouse who's been relying on the local food bank to feed her family of six on her husband's E5 salary of 3,000 a month. That doesn't even cover the basic needs for the family. After the story aired that also featured other similar stories, donations to the Military Family Advisory Network began pouring in. Over 300,000 has been raised that will go to supporting food insecurity in military communities around the country. This just shows that when we share stories, good things can happen. And, I, and we wanna hear your stories. Share what's happening in your defense community or base for an upcoming ADC live show. You can always reach us at info at defensecommunities.org. Now, what we are watching for the next headline. It's Infrastructure Week again, really, I promise this time. Infrastructure discussions are already heating up here in DC and the program ADC champion, the Defense Community Infrastructure Program has been a much discussed idea of how federal support can leverage local investment in a very targeted way. ADC is carefully watching what happens in these discussions is making sure DSIP is part of the infrastructure discussion. This past Monday was International Women's Day, and female leaders and airmen gathered for a group photo at the Grizzly Bend in Maelstrom Air Force Base in Montana. The event began with words of wisdom from Colonel Anita fugate Operman, 341st Missile Command Commander, who encouraged women to never be discouraged when faced with adversity. A great message and an important one for our military today. And speaking of Montana, back to one of its finest. I'll toss it over to you, Matt. Oh, thanks, Tim. You know, the, the Grizzly Bend Bar, that, that brings back memories. After we qualify on the rifle range, we'd head there afterwards to celebrate. Well, at least those of us who got expert anyway. Uh, I wanted to mention something, one item not in Tim's report, but something we are tracking. The commission recently established by Congress to evaluate renaming bases with Confederate names. While the Army's 10 bases have been the focus, the bill requires naming any base, installation, street, building, facility, aircraft, ship, plane, weapon, equipment, and any other property owned or controlled by the Department of Defense. That's its mission. This has been a very controversial issue and was the basis for former President Trump's attempts to veto last year's NDAA. Well, the commission has been sworn in and has had their first meeting. We'll be tracking the progress uh, over the next few years and months as it comes out, as their first report is due this October. And the final recommendations are not due, though, until October 2022. I want to underscore that ADC's position on the issue of renaming bases is to be as helpful as possible whenever and wherever the Department of Defense would like us to be. We have no position on whether the bases should be renamed or what they might be named through the Commission's actions. We believe our role is to make sure the Commission is speaking to the defense communities that support the affected installations so that their views can be heard. This will definitely be an interesting issue to track. Let's take a short break and we'll be back in a minute. Hi, I'm Celeste Warner, ADC board member and executive vice president of Matrix Design Group, a consulting firm that works closely with defense communities around the world to tackle complex challenges. Today, I'm speaking to you in both of my roles. 
Last fall, Matrix CEO Sal Najumian hosted an episode of ADC Summit Series on the topic of protecting your defense economy. This allowed us to interact with our industry peers, state and local leaders, and key decision makers. It also positioned Matrix as an expert on the issues to assist in answering questions and disseminating key information on the topics at hand. We also hosted an ADC webinar that allowed us to engage with the audience. Not only were we able to share information and to promote our brand, but we gained insight into the questions and concerns of defense communities and their stakeholders. Through these opportunities, we reached an audience of over 800 people, and we are looking forward to connecting with even more through our upcoming ADC Live segments. Like all companies and organizations operating in this virtual environment, we have had countless options for engagement. We consider ADC's offerings to be some of the most valuable in our portfolio. If your firm, organization, or community wants an opportunity to share timely updates that highlight your success and your successes, I truly encourage all of you to sign up for a segment on ADC Live. Well, welcome back. Earlier this week, ADC released a new report, Understanding Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in Defense Communities, which provides the first of its kind data on how defense community residents think about diversity, inclusion, and inequity issues. The report, which is available on the ADC website, shows that overall, defense communities face significant challenges when it comes to promoting racial equity, and they could do more to become a create a welcoming place for our military families. This report was just the first step in a broader One Military, One Community initiative. ADC launched this just last year to help educate communities on how they can engage on those issues at the local level. This includes supporting local listening sessions, surveys to understand the scope and challenges of supporting racial equity. One of the first communities to begin this process is Northern Virginia. ADC's own Grace Marvin has this report on their efforts and its value. A key component of ADC's One Military, One Community initiative is helping communities hold listening sessions to explore feelings and perspectives about racism and inequality in their region. Northern Virginia, home to Fort Belvoir, Quantico, and Joint Base Meyer-Henderson Hall, was one of the first communities to coordinate listening sessions. Their goal? To ensure that no service member, veteran, or military family ever experiences intolerance in Northern Virginia. You might start off with a question. And that question gets answered, but that answer may provoke questions that were not on the page. And that's, I think, where you get to um, a, real, a much better place for our community. I'm Penny Gross. I'm the vice chair of the Fairfax County, Virginia Board of Supervisors. And also I serve on the regional Northern Virginia Regional Commission. The first listening sessions, you know, are small to start to explore what the needs are and what the desires are. From my perspective, I see it as a lot of the people who are going to be involved in the listening sessions are from a very diverse community. I don't think there's any place more diverse than Northern Virginia in the entire country. But so you'll get the various 
aspects of people who may have grown up here, who may not have grown up here, who may have racial backgrounds that others don't quite understand. They may have cultural backgrounds that others may not understand. Listening is so important when we have conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion. But we all have um, lived experience that have shaped us. And so my lived experiences are not necessarily your lived experiences. When we have these difficult conversations, we listen to to learn and to understand as opposed to listening to just respond and defend ourselves. My name is Victor Sean Angry. I am the Neapsco District Supervisor serving under Prince William County Board of Supervisors. I came here by way of the military, where I retired um, out of the Army National Guard, out of the Pentagon, where my last assignment, I served as the um, uh, command sergeant major for the entire Army National Guard. At one point, I was very happy and honored to hear that we're doing this because I think it's something that definitely needs to be done given our current environment. But then I was I was also saddened by the fact that I've been retired now from the Army 10 years after serving 23 years. So 33 years later, we're still having these discussions. So that saddens me because I feel that we, we should be in better places than this. We have a lot of work to do when you look at the backstory of diversity. And I think it's a systems issue. Most of the things that we have in place, people, people can honestly walk away and say, I had nothing to do with that because the system is designed that way. And I think holistically, then we can look at the system and really in the same time, try to fix some things that probably are written the wrong way. We have some designs the wrong way and fix all that, you know? Because everybody has a story to tell and everybody has a situation they're going through and they're worth listening to if they're going to make the experience for all of us better. The important part of the listening session is to understand what we don't know, uh, what people value about living here, what may concern them about living here. Um, we are a welcoming community and, and we see incredible value in talking to the men and women, our veterans who live here, who serve here, to better serve them in, in the long run. If I had a bad experience here, I probably would have never asked to be reassigned back to this area. People want to be heard. And, you know, I, I think I'm more in a mode now in my career where it's more about listening, right? So... <sighs> I'm a 44-year-old white guy from Queens, New York, right? So I'm a big city guy. I don't know what it's like to be a black woman from, you know, North Georgia or South Georgia, right? I don't know what it's like to be a Hispanic guy from El Paso, Texas. But, you know, I want to hear about it. I'm looking forward to what this entire exercise is going to be because, again, I think the first um, the first few listening sessions are like 12 people each. And so as you gather more information, then you can ask additional questions. And, and I think that's where you really get to the aha moments. And then those aha moments can go into guidelines and protocols and, and, and laws, regulations and so forth to help sort of make it a, a, an even playing field, a level playing field for everybody. We uh, are experiencing in this country um, st still issues of segregation and, and civil rights issues that I was born into 52 years ago. But the titles have changed. We've morphed it into all the different things of diversity, inclusion. Uh, we went through equal opportunity. Um, and we're out of place now 
to where we, we're, we have an opportunity to do this again and get it right this time. We, we, we can't keep doing this. We, we have to get it right this time. And I, and I wholeheartedly believe that it's going to take all communities to have these sessions to make sure that the Vic Angers of tomorrow aren't born today doing this thing again 50 years from now, 30 years from now, 20 years from now. We have to invest in this opportunity to listen. Just listen to the stories. You have zero to lose and everything to gain. Think about doing a, a listening session to move the needle forward, to advance a community, to advance a conversation and move a community from talking to action. Thanks, Grace. And again, to learn more about the report and the One Military, One Community initiative, please visit the ADC website. Let's switch gears and we're going to talk about another big story that's been front and center these past few weeks. I'll toss it over to you, Matt. Big is right. Just a few short weeks ago, a massive winter storm struck many states across the south, causing widespread disruption and blackouts in Mississippi, Louisiana, Kentucky, and West Virginia. But the storm held its best blow for Texas, which bore the brunt of the storm. Large swaths of the state's residents not only lost electricity and heat, but were forced to boil water as water treatment plants failed and taps ran dry. One of the hardest hit areas was Fort Hood and the surrounding communities. Joining us today is Fort Hood Garrison Commander Colonel Jason Westbrock, who's gonna discuss how events unfolded on the ground and how the base and its neighbors banded together to weather the storm. Colonel Westbrock, welcome to the program. Thank you, and thanks for having me today, Mac. See you guys. And, uh, just real quick, for those not familiar with Fort Hood, you know, we sit along the I-35 corridor between Dallas and Fort Worth. Uh, we have about 38,000 soldiers stationed here with 52,000 family members. Uh, we support a population of about 500,000 people. And most of our population, 77% you know, of those assigned, actually live in our surrounding communities. Uh, so the majority of our families and soldiers don't live on the installation. Now, we have uh, four maneuver brigades here, the three armor brigade combat teams and the 1st Cavalry Division and the 3rd Cavalry Regiment, which is the most of any Army installation. And we're one of two active mobilization and force generating installations for the Army. Uh, so routinely, uh, day in, day out, mobilizing and demobilizing our National Guard uh, and reserve forces as they deploy and return. Well, Colonel Westbrook, before we start, let me ask you something. How's the weather right now? Well, weather right now, a little overcast, but uh, you wouldn't believe that we were having single-digit temperatures just a couple weeks ago. Uh, temperatures the last couple of days have been in the, the 70s uh, and, and maintained pretty strong right there in the 70-degree 70, uh, 70 range. That's downright balmy compared to a few weeks ago. Well, I, I, We're out running in shorts now. What can we say? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to let you know this is a story we've been following for a long time, so we're really glad that you're here today. Th there's a lot to unpack, uh, so I'll start at the beginning. You know, as it became clear that this store was inbound, what types of preparations were you able to make? Did you have time to react and get and get set? We did. And, and so when a storm, a winter storm comes into central Texas, uh, usually the kind of the SOP, the standard operating procedure is, is wait till nine o'clock the next morning and everything will melt and everything will be back to normal. Uh, so we kind of went that direction initially, uh, our schools on post belong to the Clean Independent School District. Uh, so whenever we see winter weather coming in, we're in close uh, coordination with them uh, to make sure whatever they're going to do, we're, we're kind of matching that so uh, the soldiers can uh, take their kids to school or, or get home. Our director of public works was able to get out to some of our motor pools 
uh, where we typically see uh, pipes burst in really cold weather, uh, and they were able to turn off water there. Uh, and then our, our privatized housing partner, uh, Lynn Lease, and here locally, Floor Hood Family Housing, uh, were able to get around uh, and winterize some of the unoccupied homes. Uh, and we had a, a strong media push early on to, to encourage our, our uh, soldiers and families of the actions they should take here in Central Texas to, to help prepare themselves for the cold weather. Colonel Westbrook, uh, uh, as the storm continued to uh, uh, develop and you were forced to adapt, you talked about that just a little bit. I'm, I'm really interested to know about the situation outside the fence, the, the communities that surround Fort Hood. I know there are, there are a number of them. Were you able to coordinate your emergency response efforts with those communities? I know that's a difficult task, but also a really important thing, I know, to uh, underscore in emergencies like this. Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, we did. So early on, uh, we stood up our emergency operations center here on Fort Hood uh, and we're doing daily assessments of what was going on on the installation uh, and adjustments we had to make. Part of that meeting is bringing in our counterparts from the local cities. Uh, so uh, representatives from Colleen, Coppers Cove, Harker Heights, Bell County, uh, and, and making sure we were synchronized across the different communities here to respond to the, the circumstances we're getting. Uh, some of our soldiers out with water buffaloes, uh, as the water uh, failed in, in the local communities, uh, we were able to push out some water buffaloes and, and some generators to some of our local communities as well uh, to help to help them get through the, the really difficult portion of the storm. As it continued on, the majority of the damage actually didn't occur during the extreme cold weather. It actually came about as things started to unthaw. And that's when we saw pipes bursting across the region. Well, you, you said the weather is much better in Texas today, but has the base completely recovered? What's, the, what's it look like today? Yeah, so most of the services across the installation are, are back up to 100% under COVID uh, rules, right? Uh, as far as the infrastructure and in fixing everything, we're daily uh, making uh, incremental progress. Uh, in fact, the update I just saw a few minutes ago, we have most of the water back onto all of the facilities. There's still a handful of uh, motor pools that we're, we're working through. Uh, there were some buildings that were significantly damaged on the installation, barracks rooms, uh, and we've got ongoing projects uh, to fix those. We're making daily progress, but we'll, we're going to be recovering through this probably through the end of June before we get everything fixed back to where it was. But as far as services, water's turned back on. We actually never had to go to a boil water notice uh, across the post here. There were targeted ones for where we had turned off water, and, and that was not the same in the local community. Well, I know it's still early in the process, but um, what lessons learned have you have you kind of pulled from this entire episode? And you know what worked and what didn't work? Yeah, so so great question, and we've we've done an after action review already, and, and we'll continue building on that. Uh, I think when we look back at, at what what worked, the coordination meeting that we did daily and incorporating our, our local city communities, bringing them all to the table so we could uh, discuss what was going on and how we were going to react to that. That was beneficial. I think um, when we talk on a broader scope of the installation infrastructure, our utility privatization saved us. Um, we didn't see uh, any degradation really in our electrical grid or our natural gas grid. Uh, we did see some in the water grid, but we never truly lost water to the installation, uh, which was great. And uh, for the amount of pipes that we had that that broke, our uh, contractor that does water infrastructure on the installation 
Uh, they they were working through the storm, uh, making repairs every single day, 24-7. Um, I think the, the local communities, the support that we were able to give to them was good. I'd like to streamline that process a little bit better. Uh, there are rules that govern defense support to civilian authority or DISCA, uh, and there are safeguards for many of the right reasons. Being able to, to help our community partners in, in streamline that process, I think, will, will pay us dividends in the future. And then most mostly, I would say that where we saw the biggest uh, bang for our, our buck was in the renovation of barracks. Our renovated barracks performed exceptionally well. Uh, the ones where we had uh, we had issues with pipes bursting and such were, were older barracks that we still need to renovate. Well, if I was living in those barracks, I'd be like, oh, no, I have to move out of this old crappy barracks. No. <laughs> no. Well, well there, there's probably some of that going on. But the good news is, is we're, we're not we didn't really affect wholesale barracks. Right? It was individual rooms uh, within barracks. And there was enough there was enough vacancies to move soldiers around. Uh, so they're not living in damaged rooms or they're in other healthy uh, rooms that they cannot. Well, Colonel, we're we're so glad that uh, you made it out. It's it's a it was a, a tough, challenging moment, but we're glad that you made it out uh, the way you did. So thank you, sir, so much for your time today. Uh, we hope you can get back uh, on ADC Live, or we'll see you at uh, hopefully the Installation Innovation Forum we've got coming up in November. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We want to continue this conversation and look broadly at the issues of extreme weather, what they teach us about insulation resilience, and planning for climate-related events. Joining us are two experts on these topics. Jonathan Munkin, who is a principal at Converged Strategy LLC, a consulting company focused on the intersection of advanced energy and resilience. And someone we know well, John Conger, president of Conger Strategies and non-resident fellow at the Center for Climate and Security. Welcome to both of you, to, and welcome to AD live. Thanks, Thanks so much. So much. Great to be here. It's good well, to be here. Jonathan, let's start with you. Um, what Texas and nearby states experienced a few weeks ago is a clear case of energy systems not being resilient. Taking a step back, help us understand how energy resilience relates to mission assurance for the military. Yeah, I think really what it does is it highlights the fact that I think there's growing recognition of the fact that all DOD missions and those installations that they originate from are ultimately dependent on private infrastructure. And so when we see an event like this unfold and we see multiple cascading failures of energy systems, water systems, in some case, communication systems, it really raises some significant issues about trying to understand what that means from DOD's ability to project force. Thank goodness in this particular instance, there are no bases in Texas that were certainly actively engaged in some type of force projection mission that would require their continued access to each of those infrastructure systems. But you can see just highlighting Fort Hood related topics, how many resources need to be diverted to really support the community that surrounds the installation and really just provide those essential services to the soldiers and service members that live on the base. John, over to you. Um, help us understand how, how does this Texas experience kind of relate to the bigger climate change discussions that are happening now? Well, it, it's uh, it's not like you can attribute one storm to climate change any more than you can attribute a hurricane to climate change or, or anything like that. But what you do see is weather starting to get worse. And you see the odds changing. Uh, I think that a lot of the conversation about the Texas winter storm uh, was that 
the odds of a winter storm on the on that scale have started to change and and so if you if you think the odds don't matter you can go talk to your friends in las vegas the odds matter the uh if something is more likely we have to start preparing for it and that changes the risk equation um i i think that's going to lead to uh an increase in investments down the road um you know this administration uh, that's come in wants to talk about climate wants to focus on climate. And they also want to focus on infrastructure and investments. And we've, you alluded to earlier in the program, the, the, uh, uh, the infrastructure bill. And so when you combine climate as a priority and infrastructure as a priority, you start talking about resilience as a priority. And so I think they're going to start looking at uh, what kind of investments uh, they're going to need to make. Across the across the enterprise, it was interesting listening to the commander from Fort Hood. You know, he he talked about how utilities privatization saved him. Um, the the fact of the matter is, is that when you privatize your utilities on a base, that that means you invest a lot of money on the utilities in the base and you upgrade everything. And that is probably something this that they're going to want to take a look at. Uh, Jonathan, back to you and, and continuing this discussion about investments. What's going on? What's the discussion in DOD? Uh, how are they looking to address these vulnerabilities? So there's actually quite a bit of effort underway right now within the department to try and identify both the risk and, and overall severity of that particular risk, and then try and outline some of the broad strokes of what really needs to be done around it. So the Defense Science Board has a task force that's dedicated to this particular issue on defense critical infrastructure, really just trying to wrap their arms around how significant is the risk that we need to contend with. And so one of the biggest challenges is until you have a full understanding of what risk looks like beyond the fence line, which is an area that the department doesn't currently have a great deal of visibility into, you really can't articulate a strategy for a combination of infrastructure investment, what you can do on the base to try and mitigate some of the potential consequences of the loss of these infrastructure systems. And then really trying to align these types of investment strategies that we're referring to here when we talk about the mechanisms that are available to the federal government to try and address it. The biggest challenge there is you have to do it with partners. And if you need a friend, it's too late to make one. So in this instance, early engagement with communities and then also early engagement with these private utilities as to what these needs are, what types of requirements exist to maintain these mission assurance capabilities and how risk does not stop at the fence line of the installation it really bleeds right through it. And so it, 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 we have to try and understand what a shared risk environment looks like if we really want to have a good chance at tackling it systematically to the point where we can get that risk at acceptable levels to the national security implications. So, Jonathan, back to you. Help us understand what is being done to address this, this these issues of, like, of, of resiliency nationwide, and how does this impact communities positively or negatively? Yeah, I mean, I think essentially what we're, we're trying trying to do is there's really a holistic approach right now. When you look at the transformation of something like the U.S. electric grid, the pace of change has increased dramatically over the last 10 to 15 years. There's been substantial changes to the generation mix that's out there that's providing services to communities and defense installations alike. And there's been a lot of effort that's been trying to focus on what we can do to achieve these community-driven outcomes of trying to understand that an event like what we saw in Texas, you may be faced with a really difficult choice of saying, well, I don't have enough energy to supply both the water purification facility and the local hospital. And making a difficult choice means that you have to understand what the consequences are. And there were multiple instances in Texas during that event where a hospital had electricity but did not have access to potable water 
meaning that they were forced to evacuate the building. They could not treat patients without access to clean water. And so understanding where those trade-offs are, understanding what decisions, both in terms of investment in infrastructure and real-time operational decisions, really can have significant consequences when you talk about what it means to the community and the people that those life support systems are really intended to serve. And until you try, and until you can effectively unpack those, you really can't address the risks. So right now what we're seeing is there's a lot of discussion around what's different about the Texas system as an example from a grid perspective than it is in other areas that are able to handle cold weather more effectively. Types of things are currently being done to try and bolster infrastructure, recognizing that that is certainly a cost that will be borne by some combination of ratepayers and taxpayers, depending on how ultimately those programs are structured, aligned, and, and ultimately implemented. So there's a lot of effort underway recognizing that there are so many really significant events, everything from wildfires to the increase in frequency and severity of, of hurricanes and those types of events, coupled with man-made risks like cybersecurity. When you take all those things holistically, you understand that the environment is changing, infrastructure is inherently vulnerable, and actions need to be taken. John, a quick question for you. For you. We can't figure these, these things out overnight, but what, what is something that Congress could do right now that would move us in the right direction towards uh, you know, helping build installation utility resilience? So, so what Congress can do right now is is sort of fund and provide the resources that match the ambition of the department. Uh, when the uh, administration comes forward with their FY22 budget, uh, I think you're going to see a lot more uh, desire for investment and resilience. You're going to you're they're going through these drills right now, and we'll see the budget in May. Todd alluded to uh, you know a lot of the weapon systems puts and takes, but I think uh, you're going to see a desire to invest in resilience from the department. They're 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 going to shift some more resources there. What Congress can best do at this point in time, because they've done a lot to give authority. Um, right now, they're going to need to uh, fund the, the newfound ambition. Well, I want to thank both of you for joining us today. We're happy to be introducing one of the reoccurring segments we plan to feature as a part of ADC Live, the state update, something that's very close to my heart as a state official. This feature will give real-time updates on what states are doing to support their installations, defense economy, and military families. By sharing these great ideas, we hope to seed innovation around the country. We're happy to be joined today by Michael Beam with Stateside Associates, who will be our guide for the topic. When it comes to understanding what states are doing, Michael is the man. His work over the past 25 years has brought him to most of the state capitals around the country and has yielded an extensive network of relationships with legislative leaders and other public officials. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much. Appreciate you including me in your first episode. Thanks. State activity regarding um, uh, neighborhood military installations and actions uh, is really intended to protect the quality of life of military families and has been on the rise over the past uh, 10 years or so. Um, and as a result of increased awareness about how state public policy can affect military community relations and the health and well-being of service members and veterans and families, but also growing land conflicts uh, due to rapid urban sprawl, a drawdown of troops in the Middle East, federal budget cuts, and the never-ending threat of uh, base or, or mission realignment. Michael, uh, comments on those topics? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit it right on the head. These The states that host the military bases have been facing unique and multiple pressures over the last couple decades. Uh, the land conflicts, this threat of the, not so much of BRAC, but certainly of mission realignment. And, you know, You've also mentioned the drawdown in the Middle East commitments. Uh, thousands of service members and newly separated service members have returned to these communities. And that brings a mixed bag. It brings back great uh, employees 
for employers, but it also brings back a number of, of challenges that some of these service members face who need employment. Um, I think the department's been doing a much better job of raising awareness about how state actions and, and policies can affect uh, military community relationships. And, and, and they're partnering with the states uh, more frequently in local communities. Um, but, you know, the department's also been increasing awareness about how protecting the base uh, protects the state and local economy. These bases are anchors. And, and, and it's also important to note, and, and we can't forget this, that uh, the quality of life of those military families really plays an outsized role in sustaining any military community. So we designed this segment to give viewers a sense of state policy actions and trends addressing military community relations across the country. There's a very active policy area. Lots of bills are being considered and passed in state houses across the country. So to help all of us organize this information, Michael, you've divided state policy into a few different buckets. Can you share those real quick? Absolutely. Um, we, we've, we've created a list or, you know, working with the Department of Defense, in fact, um, we're watching a, a number of issues very closely. We throw them into whether you consider base protection efforts, and that's mitigating development around the base um, or, or features of development such as light pollution or um, you know, the challenges that new home buyers uh, face when they move next to a military air base or, or, or experience training noise. Um, base support, and, and by that, those investments in funding and infrastructure projects around the base that protect the mission and those jobs associated with the base. You know, compatible land use, um, those are the partnerships with DOD and some of the federal agencies uh, to protect the critical neighboring training space and open space. Uh, you know, there's a successful REPI program, Sentinel Landscapes, that that probably most of your viewers are familiar with, and targeted conservation easements. Um, you know, one of the new challenges is development of energy, um, compatibility with that, uh, wind structures, uh, wind turbines, and, and that might interfere with the air mission. But also, you know, some of the other important issues uh, that have been referenced, service member transition uh, to civilian employment. And it's critically that, that you know, the department doing that right and the states helping them is critically important to recruitment and, and our obligation to those folks who've served. Uh, military spouse support, uh, enabling spouses to take their licenses and professional certificates with them wherever they move. Improving the quality of K-12 through schools. And look, this is a basing criteria now. Uh, communities are going to be judged on the quality of their schools. And, and, and financial education and protection for service members and their families. I think those are, yeah, there's a lot more categories, but I think that those are a very important group. Thanks, Michael. And this is going to be, you know, as every episode, we're going to dive into different states. So we're going to be covering a lot of different buckets, like you said. It's uh, There's a lot of stuff going on. I, you know, for this first segment, I'd like to jump right down into Texas. They have something that's uh, a program that's been going on for the last couple of years. Very innovative. I think it's been very successful. Uh, I think it's going to get a lot more money this year, it looks like, in the State House. Can you talk to us about the, the Texas Military Grant Program? Yeah, listen, and I'm sure your last guest, Colonel Westbrock, is very familiar with it. It's a really neat program under the Texas Military Preparedness Commission. Um, just recently, the governor announced almost $17 million in state funds are going to be invested in infrastructure projects and, and a number of other initiatives. You know, everything from transportation to energy in seven in it's seven communities, seven to eight communities, really to increase the value of the installations in Texas and, and protect jobs in those communities. I, I, all of your viewers, at least those in Texas, will know there are 15 very large military installations. Um, and this program was created to preserve, or protect, expand um, 
even attract new military missions to the state. The governor's office um, and the legislature have been really good partners with with the military and funding this every year. Uh, they recognize the value of the military to Texas. And, and as you just mentioned, um, I've heard that they're looking to significantly plus up the program for next year to almost $30 million. Michael, Thanks, we only have a, a few minutes left. And I, I want to give you a, a chance to share any other interesting current legislative hack actions and, and uh, developments that might be worth sharing today. Sure, just a, I'll mention just a couple. Um, we're watching air, uh, legislation in Arizona and Florida that would give those states some more flexibility in using acquired property to protect or buffer military installations or use the funds from conveyance of those properties to support base protection efforts. Uh, some legislation was introduced in Mississippi this year. It didn't go anywhere this year, but we're hoping it'll move next year. Uh, that would require local governments, uh, neighboring military airfields, to notify the base and the wing commander um, if a local planning proposal would impact the air mission. Alabama just introduced a package of bills, and, and they passed them. It's on the way to the governor that would protect military communities. One of those bills uh, touches on wind turbine siding and uh, uh, would would ensure that those the wind turbine siding around the coast could not adversely affect the air emissions in Alabama. And we're also watching those bills in New York, South Carolina, and Texas. But I would just want to mention one last issue, and this is critical. States are starting to plan for climate change, um, planning for climate resiliency, and bringing in stakeholders such as the military bases. Um, the states are, are, are recognizing that this is a national concern, uh, security concern. It impacts the current missions, operations, and the readiness of their bases and their economic anchor. Um, so I, I didn't want to uh, let this go without talking about that, because you're going to hear about this issue uh, on, on, in more of your programming, I'm sure. Thanks, Michael. And we'll definitely have you back. Uh, as you said, there's a Thank lot you. to unpack, uh, and we want to make sure that we cover all of the great things happening at the state uh, level. Well, folks, that's a wrap of our first episode of ADC Live. Thank you for joining us for this new format of connecting with all of you. We'll be back again in just two weeks on March 24th. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you, your thoughts, your comments, your stories. You can get in touch with us at info at defensecommunities.org. And from our studio here in Washington, D.C., thanks for watching ADC Live.